Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie Nui here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Every year, a few hundred people make it onto the anesthesia training program. If you are one of these people, then huge congratulations. This is a very exciting time in your life. Some of you may be wondering what to do in these few months before you start as an anesthetic registrar. And of course, you would also have realized that anesthetic training comes with exams. And one of the questions on your mind might be whether and how to start studying for the primary exam, which is a huge hurdle. If you're in this situation, this podcast is for you. I'm talking with Kaylee Jordan, who won the Renton Prize, which is the prize for the first part exam. And I'm also talking with Hamish Lanyon, who is a second year registrar who passed his primary exam earlier this year. We'll be talking about what to do in these few months, as well as some of the things you might want to think about as you start preparing for the exam. For those of you who are a bit like me, where the primary exam is a distant memory, then this episode will be a blast from the past and hopefully remind you about what it is that some of our more junior colleagues are going through at this time in their lives. There are also hundreds out there who didn't get a job on the program. I'm terribly sorry to those of you who did apply this year for missing out. All is not lost. I do have an episode coming out soon, especially for you guys. All right, let's get into it. You're both so busy with your clinical load and all the Viva practice. So thanks for sitting down and doing this podcast with me. You're welcome. Hamish, when did you sit the exam? Uh, I was in the first sitting of 2021. Well, well done. Congratulations. And Kaylee, I hear you did very well. Congratulations for getting the prize and a merit. Do you know, is there a set number of people who get a merit? I think it's generally about three or so you normally get a merit. There's not a set number per year. It's just a year-by-year basis. It's based on the actual standard rather than having a set quota. I think so, yeah. But tonight we're talking because there's some people around the country who found out that they've got jobs on the anaesthetic training program. So congratulations to those people. And one of the things that they're probably wondering is whether they should start preparing for the exam as well as bracing for life as an anaesthetic registrar. And I know there's a bit of debate around whether you should use this time pre-anaesthetic training to start studying so that you can sit your exam in your first year or whether you knuckle down, get some experience in anaesthesia and then start studying for the exam in your second year. So Hamish, you sat in your second year. Hayley, when did you sit your primary? Were you in your first year or your second year? I did the same. Yeah, first sitting, second year. Okay. And so would that be the approach that you recommend? It's tricky in that what I would recommend in terms of the ideal time in your training to sit the exam and to have a good chance of passing the exam comfortably is not just the only factor at play when people are deciding when to sit the exam. In some hospitals, there is a push towards sitting in the first sitting and some trainees feel uh, pressure to sit in the first sitting even if they otherwise don't feel entirely ready to sit then. Yeah, and it might be related to job prospects. I think it's probably more of an issue where people aren't on a rotational scheme and don't have a guaranteed job for the following year. Yeah. For people, as I said, who are pre-vocational this year, they've just been told they've got a job on the training program. Would they know at this stage whether they've got a rotational job versus an independent job, which is just for the one year versus for the full four years of training? Certainly in Victoria, they would. I'm not sure if it's a different system interstate. Okay. So that's probably a good thing for people to find Mm. out what sort of job they've got, whether it's just the one year or whether they've got a job for the rest of their training program. 
Absolutely. Yeah. If people are not on the rotational program, certainly it is in their interest in terms of job prospects to consider sitting in first year if they feel appropriately prepared to do so. And that's certainly a big stick, isn't it? Future job prospects yeah. and suddenly I, I, things that seemed important in your life may have to give way in order to guarantee future job certainty. Another thing to consider is that I think often at the time jobs are offered, the exam results are not necessarily released yet. It may come down to the fact that you've sat it all rather than whether you've passed at the time you're offered the job for second year. Just say someone's in that position and they're very strongly considering that they would like to sit in their first year. How would they know it's the right time to sit? What sort of things are they going to look at in their life? to answer that question. Even regardless of the job situation, there's a strong culture in Victoria, particularly about sitting in the first year. I know when my group came through as new trainees, almost every single person had initially decided to sit in August of the first sitting and then a a good amount of them changed their mind. I think a lot of it comes down to knowing yourself, knowing how you study and knowing how prepared you are to take that task on. I think you need to budget for a proper 10 to 12 months of study. If you go for 10 months, then that means you will have just been accepted onto the program and you need to start studying properly in October and have a plan and really hit the ground running. You know, you should be, you know, minus one week into your plan already. Some people are amazing and can just study consistently every week, week in, week out without fail. I tend to be a bit more patchy. So I allowed myself more time. I knew there'd be weeks when I just wouldn't manage it very well. After I got onto the program, the whole process of the application and interview was pretty stressful. And I just felt like I needed a break. I felt like I was a bit burnt out. And I think having that self-awareness to say, just give yourself some time off and then take your time to set up your plan and then start. That's why I went for the sitting in second year. It's not something that you want to have a go at. It's something that you definitely want to give your best attempt, your first attempt and pass the first time because the mental battle of worrying about failing this exam is heavy and difficult enough the first time around. But if you have the history of having failed at once, even if it wasn't a proper attempt, that mental battle would just be that much harder. That's a really good clear point there that for people who are listening to this podcast, which is probably going to be coming out in October, if you're not already one or two weeks into your study proper, then August is looking ambitious. I would agree. I think it's generally an exam that about 12 months should be put into. Uh, I think I studied for 10 months up until the written 12 months, including the lead up to the Viva. And even when I was starting studying, a few people were starting to tell me I was leaving it too late. I think it's important to get advice from multiple different sources. Hamish and I both sat at similar time in, in our training. We put a similar amount of time into the lead up. However, there are always going to be people that have differing advice about that. The other point that we haven't touched on is the added thing of learning how to be a registrar while also studying for the exam. By the time they start as a basic trainee in February, they're already four months into their study plan and things are starting to pick up and they're distracted and focused on studying and trying to avoid theatre time in order to hit the books. But at the same time, they're supposed to learn how to actually be a registrar and actually give an anaesthetic. So for me, I found sitting in the first sitting of second year very valuable because it just gave you those few months to just learn how to be a registrar and learn how to put someone to sleep and work within a team without adding on all this extra distraction. You look like you agree with that, Kaylee. 
Those first few months are quite critical in terms of settling into your new role. It is a big step up from a resident position, getting to know the people in your department, working out who is going to be prepared to give you the help and support that you need for your training in the department, passing the initial uh, assessment that you do in the first few months as a registrar, I think would be quite challenging to be doing at the same time as trying to prioritise primary exam study. It is a big volume exam. When I was sitting, I was working with Mark Reeves, who went on to become the chair of the primary exam. And he said of all the years that he'd been examining, one of the big standout differences between those registrars that tended to pass and those that tended not to were whether they'd put in their 1,000 hours of study. And a 1,000 hours of study is about three hours average per day, every day of a year. So it's a huge volume of study when you're considering that you're also working hard. Exactly. Uh, So I think to answer your question from before, Susie, about when you know when you're ready to take that on, I think you need to look at what's going on in both your work and outside of work and decide when you're able to dedicate that time and effort. That's a really good point. So you've got a thousand hours of study to get in before you hopefully successfully pass your exam. And you've got a brand new job that you need to learn. So again, thinking about pre-vocational trainees who've just found out they've got their job for next year, what could they be doing at the moment? I think taking a well-earned break at this point, honestly. (laughs) I suppose if you are planning to sit in the second sitting, it's a good time to find yourself a study group and start the discourse around it, start thinking about resources and start trying to come up with a plan. Second year registrars will be a great resource as a source of study plans. Everyone will have a plan that they came up with and you can have a look at a couple of them and try and figure out what works for you. I think it's good to start that pre-meditation early because when your time starts, it just starts. But I would not start studying early. I wouldn't advise that. Have your plan and start when it starts because studying for too long is just as bad as not studying for long enough. You will burn out if you try and study for 14 or 15 months before the written. So I would take time off and get organised and then get ready to start. But as Hamish said, that's the time that you can take to seek out people that you may wish to study with, seeking out people that may be able to help you, working out what resources you're going to use, deciding on an approach to how you might study the exam, because the approach that works for you is going to be very different to the approach that works for someone else. You've mentioned that a few times, Hamish, about getting advice from people, working out your resources, developing your plan. Is there anything else involved in hitting the ground running? There's a lot to those things. A plan for us certainly was a very specific thing. Our plan covered every individual week along the lead up to the exam. I know Kaylee has a different approach to this, but we studied via past SAQs, which for me, I found quite helpful because it was every week we had eight SAQs-ish to get through, which gave you a clear goal that was digestible. So SAQs are short answer questions, and you can usually find them through the examiner's reports that are published through the college. So you didn't do the eight SAQ a week approach? No, I absolutely did do SAQ practice. I did four SAQs to time every day, at least six months out, I started doing them. Uh, So I definitely used the SAQs to study. It helps you work out what depth and breadth of knowledge that you need to develop, you know, structures and the way that you should answer the exams to read the examiner's reports. 
to get in the mind of the examiner, I suppose. It's very important to do that. I think where people go wrong is where they use the SAQs as their syllabus because you're just opening yourself up to error when something is put in there that is a new question. There's a lot of repeats, so it's really important to do the SAQs. Where people tend to come unstuck is where they used past exams as their study syllabus rather than actually using the learning outcomes. Hamish, did you use the syllabus and all the learning outcomes or did you rely on the SAQs for your syllabus? I suppose we did a little bit of both, but we focused more on the SAQs. So for an average week, we would use the SAQs to direct the study, but I would read broadly around the topic rather than just answering that one question. And then at the end of the week, or particularly more in our revision time, we looked more at the learning objectives to see if there's only gaps in our knowledge. But I suppose the disclaimer to that is that the other thing that was maybe a little different about what our group did is we allowed a lot of revision time. We finished our first pass of the syllabus four months out from the written. And so there was a huge amount of time then to go back and plug holes and you can delete that if you think that's terrible advice. <laughs> but it's the honest truth of what we did. I'm not a, a Renton Prize winner. I don't think I hit my thousand hours of study. I found studying really, really difficult. So for me, it was a little bit of put my time where the money is. And if they ask a brand new question on something that's never been asked before, I'd, I'd take the loss on that. There is a little bit of playing the numbers game. There's 15 SAQs. So if if 12 have been repeats and you can answer them well and one's on something completely new and you have no idea and you you bomb out that overall you've got enough to, to scrape over the line. See, I think the trouble with that approach is that most people, even in the topics or SAQs that they know well, will not get a higher number of points for those questions. So it doesn't take much to have a few blank pages to do very poorly or to just do poorly enough in those ones to bring you just below that pass line. So you want to be very, very good in the SAQs that you do know if you're going to play that game. It's a risk, isn't it? What I do take away from what we just chatted about is the meticulous planning. It sounds like you had it almost planned to the week what you were going to be studying. Yeah, oh, we did. Whereas mine was completely unplanned. I would not necessarily recommend doing that, but I had zero schedule. I just wanted to get through the syllabus and I didn't do it in order. I put the syllabus up on my wall And when I got home from work, I'd go, what do I feel like studying today? And I'd look around until I found a topic I thought was interesting, read about it and put a highlighter through that learning outcome or the several learning outcomes that I'd covered that day. And so when I got home from work and was really tired, I could focus on something I thought sounded interesting or easy. And then when I had a day off, say on a weekend, I would go, okay, it's time to attack whatever I'd been avoiding, like immunology, hematology, How could you then be guaranteed that you were going to make it through the whole syllabus in time? I couldn't. I kept a track of how much highlighter was on my 37 pages uh, to keep an idea of what proportion of the syllabus I looked like I was tracking in. And I know that sounds like a very bad approach and it probably was. But as I said, what works for one person doesn't work for another person. Interesting. Interesting how different people do it, isn't it? I'm a bit more like Hamish. So I had days where I'd sit down and do an SAQ and then I'd have days where I'd do revision instead just to break up the style of study. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Sometimes I'd be doing one topic, I'd be a bit sick of it, so I'd go for a run and listen to a doctor podcast on a completely different topic. And sometimes that's all your Mm. brain needs to work back up again. Yeah, I have a long history of leaving everything to the last minute with every exam that I've ever sat aside from this one. So for me, it was about giving myself a deadline. And even within the week, I would still cram because I'm just shocking like that. But if I had tried Kaylee's method, 
I would have probably just procrastinated for six months and then had a panicked attempt. So I needed to construct barriers and boundaries for myself to force myself into actually doing the work. I did um, end up like, you know, one week would end up approximately often being dedicated towards one topic because I'd just get on a roll with it. So when I got home, what I'd feel like studying is whatever I was reading the night before because it felt like the path of least resistance on a tired brain. So that's good. We've got completely different approaches to planning for the exam, but they both work. I know from before, you also had different approaches to study group. So I didn't have the option of a study group because I was the only person sitting at the small hospital that I was at. However, when I was at a bigger hospital for my final exam, I studied by myself as well. I think it's important if you're going to study in a study group to know exactly what the purpose of that study group is and making sure you use it for that purpose. I did definitely have contacts like WhatsApp groups of other people studying that we would discuss ideas and concepts and sometimes phone calls. So I did have somebody I could essentially study with or compare ideas with, but was mostly doing the study by myself. Yeah. And Hamish, you used the study group. How did you find your study group? I did have a study group, but we actually didn't study much together. So I know some study groups took the approach of dividing up short answer questions between each other and then presenting their answers to each other. We didn't do that because there's no way that you're going to learn a topic well enough if you just have someone else do the work and then listen to their presentation. I think you need to do all of the SAQs and all of the work yourself. We tried presenting topics to each other, but we only did it a couple of times and then we stopped. What I I found really valuable about the study group was that it was a great resource to just send questions to each other when you wake up in the middle of the night, particularly closer to the end and have like a existential crisis over angiotensin. You can message people about that. And then the other thing was that it set the bar high for each other. I really appreciated my group because they were all very, very hard workers and really bright guys who were very dedicated to this. And so no one wanted to be the guy in the group that was falling behind. Yeah. So great accountability buddies. Yeah. Were your study group all from the same hospital? No, actually, because I didn't actually know any other trainees when I got on. My study group was a friend of mine from uni. I linked in with him and he was studying with two other residents. So that's how we sort of connected again. Did you catch up in person or via Zoom? No, COVID really split us. Like we didn't catch up in person once for the whole time. Actually, no, we did catch up once for um, beers and whiskey. Not a lot of study got done. (laughs) (laughs) I remember we did that with our study group too. Sometimes you just needed to call it and just have a night off from the exam. So did you study with your group then, Susie? Yeah, I had a study group with four of us and it was good. Four would be a nice group size, I imagine. How many did you have, Hamish, for? Yeah, four as well. Just a good group of people to keep you accountable. But you mentioned for pre-vocational trainees to use this time to talk to people, to get advice. What sort of questions should they be asking? I think I would really just ask recently sitting people particularly about how they studied when they actually sat down at the desk and ask a lot about their plans. The plan is the first thing to get together. But I found one of the biggest challenges when I started studying was that you've got no concept where to even begin and it all just feels very absurd. I think learning how to study is a bit of a process in itself. I think it took me about three months to work out how to study again. Mm. It had been a while since I'd sort of sat any big exam. And I really do feel like those first three months were completely wasted time. So I don't really know how people sit it with six months. 
I remember someone gave me that advice when we were learning how to sit the exam and they said, don't be surprised if it takes you two or three false starts for studying because you, you try one technique, you realize that's not actually helping you learn. You try another technique and then you finally get the, the technique that is what carries you through to the exam. Mm. I thought you meant two or three goes of the exam. <laughs> no, no, no. You, want, you want to finish it once, but you can have a few false study starts. I was just going to say, to take a step back from what Hamish was saying, before you're sitting there with your mountain of resources is to be asking what resources to use in that there are a mountain of resources and everyone will tell you that you should read this particular one front to back and if you put together all the resources that people insisted that you must read you'd never get through them all Um, so I think a good question to be asking would be advice on what resources to use and how to use them. There's a lot of different types of resources now you've got the traditional books you mentioned podcasts before Kaylee. And there's things like the Black Bank. The Black Bank is still of use, even though it's not used as much, I don't think, by current trainees. Its questions may have stopped it, I think, for the primary exam at 2016 or so. But there's still a lot of questions popping up from pre-2016. And there's a lot of debate on there about answers to questions with reasoning and resources behind those answers. Can you just explain what the Black Bank is to people who've never heard of it before? Yes, yeah, so the Black Bank is a website that has been put together for people to collate remembered exams. It's particularly used for multiple choice questions. There is some information on past SAQs. The SAQs are published, the MCQs are not, and so therefore they are recalled with variable accuracy and have previously been put on the Black Bank, whereas now I think they tend to be circulated around study groups in secrecy. So again, speaking of resources to seek out, that would be a good place to start as well. And I hear also there's good sets of notes that are circulating. That's a resource that wasn't around in my day, but that's becoming another option. MAC 95 has become just ubiquitous for primary study. Did either of you use MAC 95? We were pre-MAC 95 days. (laughs) I feel like saying I was (laughs) (laughs) pre-Apple. If there's any candidates out there who aren't aware of this as a resource, then you need to be. It's MAK 95 and it can be purchased online or licensed about $100. It forms basically the core of everyone who I've spoken to study plan. It's got a few really nice features in there. This has just become a plug for Mac 95. They should pay me for this. <laughs> I didn't realise you had to pay for it. Yeah, uh, but it's it's very, very well worth it. The most basic thing that it does is it has all of the past SAQs collated together according to topic from all the past years back to, I think, 1999. It's up to close to, I think, about 600 SAQs. You can tick them all off as you go and you can put your study plan in there as well and see that you're tracking alongside with it. It also has a huge bank of past MCQs. I don't know that they're all post the syllabus change. So I use Mac 95 and I use collections that Kaylee talked about that are handed around in hushed and reverent tones. The other thing it has, which is really good, which is sort of the notes you're alluding to, is that each short answer question is then linked through Mac95 to three different resources for model answers. It links to Propofol Dreams, to Ketamine Nightmares, and to Amanda Diaz, as well as to the examiner's report for that question. It's great. It's incredibly efficient. I think one of the pitfalls to it, though, which is something that I fell into a bit early in my study, is it's tempting to just use those model answers as a resource 
for your learning, but they're very much truncated. They're presenting it in the way that you might present it in an exam. If you try and learn it from that, you'll slip into more of a rote learning style. I think those resources are great when you come to your revision. Like Ketamine Nightmares particularly has great data sets, but if you're going through the first time and you need to understand a topic, which I think is the key to the first pass of your reading, you have to go to textbooks. It's so much easier than trying to learn it from these model answers. So they have their place, but it's a trap to be reliant on them. 100% agree. I think that when you're looking at these short answers, you might look and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. And then you come back to it two months later and you swear you've never seen the question before in your life. And then particularly at the Viva, they will pick you apart at that point because the Viva is all about your understanding of a topic and they will approach things from deliberately obscure angles and ways you've never seen it before. And if you've just wrote learned it to regurgitate it on the page based on the SAQ, then you won't be able to manipulate the concepts in the way that they expect you to in the Viva. But if you understand it, the Viva is not a big challenge. It reminds me when I was a clinical medical student, we were assigned to a mentor and he gave us his one tip. And he said that when he was a medical student, he summarized Harrison's. And then he said that when it came to revising for the exams, he said, you know, those books that are called lecture notes in, and there's all different, you know, lecture notes in hematology, lecture notes in. Well, he said he'd actually already written his version of lecture notes in because that's what the summary of Harrison's was. Wow. I wrote my own notes and never looked at them again. I, the learning was in the writing of them. When it came to looking later, I was going to look back at a textbook, not my own notes, which may have errors in them. I just wrote things out lots of times and then threw the book out at the end. And that's not right for me. No, I, I was exactly the same in that regard. I think writing typed formal summaries of things is just a phenomenal waste of time. But writing out summaries of things just by hand in shorthand is a great way to synthesize information and learn it. I have volumes of just chicken scratch garbage that no one would ever be able to understand. Did you use flashcards? I started doing that and then I found that I was putting more and more and more information on them and basically (laughs) using them as little notebooks that again I'd never look at again. So I did still use them for things like the list that you just can't avoid, like the different, for example, saturated vapor pressures. Yeah, I didn't really use them either. But that's just because that's never been a thing that I've done with studying before, I suppose. I've always just written out the notes to try and understand it the first time. And then when I need to do it again, I'll just try and write it out again until I can write it out from memory. But I've never really used flashcards. I think there's definitely a place for them. I think they're good, particularly in revision and particularly for data, things that you have to write learn. There are flashcards going around with multiple choice questions and people's proposed answers. Always be beware of people's proposed answers and <laughs> find out the answers yourself. But there are plenty of decks of, I think Anki is one of the main apps used, where you can flick through testing yourself on your multiple choice questions when you're not at home at your desk. So many more resources mm-hmm. now. There are. Just to go back to Mac95, Frank Sun, who's the anaesthetist that put together, actually has come along as a guest examiner on our ASA Viva night a few times. I'm glad you mentioned the Viva because I think that's a very key thing to think about is the approach for the Viva and the written exam, same or different? Uh, The Viva is all about understanding and it can be quite worrying to realise when you're studying for the Vivas 
a topic that you thought you knew very well for the written and it turns out you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. And that's when the value of a study group really comes in is when you're doing viva practice. You realise when you're explaining something that you don't necessarily understand it as well as you think you do. And if you realise that, then you need to go away and look more up about it. Getting as many people as you can to give you vibes, not just nice people, but people that might be more honest with you, I think is really good. Uh, You don't want to just have your mission to get as many vibes as possible and find that you don't end up getting as much from each one as you should, though. You need to use those vibes to identify the gaps in your knowledge, to think about the way that you structure your answers, and to go away and work on those things before your next one. I would say exactly the same thing. I think I was stunned by how many things I particularly realised I didn't deeply understand until I started studying for the Viva. It's difficult to do at the time, but I think everyone in hindsight says they wish they'd started doing Vivas before the written. Although I don't think anyone actually does, because if you're in the position of looking down the barrel of the written, it's all you can think about. But when you start doing vivas on similar topics is often when you actually grasp the concepts properly for the first time. When you're leading up to the written in the final weeks and months, you get SAQ burnout. And at that point, it might be good to to do things in a viva format just to have a different way of looking at the information and keep studying in a way that might refresh your brain a bit. But for the Viva practice itself, what I did was just track down as many people as I could to give me a Viva. And then after each Viva, get your feedback and then write the questions down and go away and study around that and then do that on repeat. And there was a lot of Vivas that I was given that the first time I was given them, I just absolutely bombed it. But then after a while, the same things start coming up and you slowly, slowly build up your knowledge around those topics. One important thing in the lead up to the vibers for the primary is that a lot of the consultants and even registrars will have forgotten a lot of their primary exam knowledge. It's not like the final where you can go, oh, hey, you're free. Can I have a viva? So I would suggest approaching people early and most people will be able to scrape together something within a week. That's a very good tip there because, yes, people like us do have to go off and study for our practice primary fiver that we are giving. (laughs) And this is the thing to bear in mind as well. Although you might get away with fudging information during a practice exam with a colleague at work, you're not going to get away with that when you've got an examiner examining you. So if you didn't get pulled up on the knowledge that you didn't know well, but you know that you didn't really know it, still go away and look it up. (laughs) If you're having trouble finding someone to go through practice vivas with you to that really high quality, uh, where do you suggest they go, Kaylee? So if you're at a hospital where you don't have those resources, I would suggest that you come along to our ASA viva nights. We do them for the primary and the final examinations and you can find that on the ASA Ed website. The other thing is I coordinate some viva nights through the hospital and anyone that's sitting at a small hospital that doesn't have those sorts of resources as available to them, please get in touch and I'll add you to our list. I'd say as well, I'd utilise your other registrars and fellows. There'll be a lot of people who won't be able to necessarily teach you the content from a viva, but a lot of people will have recalled vivas from when they went through. So you can at least get them to deliver you the questions and you can practice. Be careful taking practice vivas from your fellow sitters who are working particularly at the same hospital. Uh, because the people giving you practice exams don't have unlimited vivas. And if you use one that your study group has been given, then you may find that you get given that by an examiner 
only two days later, you may nail it, but you're not getting out of it what you're meant to be getting out of it. So we've gone through a lot of resources for the exam. Is there anything that people should not do in the lead up to the exam? I think not giving the exam the priority that it requires is where I think some people come unstuck. Unfortunately, you can't expect to do everything social and everything sport related that you used to do, as well as starting a new job as a registrar, as well as expecting to do in the exam. Some people may be able to do that, but usually something's got to give. Hamish, any other suggestions from you? I think the main thing that I would caution against is just that this isn't an exam where you want to have a crack because I do hear of that being a not uncommon thing. People saying, oh, I'll have a go in August, but I'm sort of actually planning to pass in February because you don't want to put yourself through that stress and you definitely don't want to put yourself through the disappointment of not passing and then having that hanging over you as you go for your real attempt. Absolutely agree. However, I think it is an exam where you never really feel ready to sit. I think you do reach a point where you go, I think I'm ready to give this a good crack. And I think that's the point at which you know whether you're ready to sit or not. I remember we we talked about reaching knowledge saturation. It wasn't that we knew everything, but you would learn something new and something old would fall out of your head at the same rate. (laughs) You never, ever feel ready to sit, which is probably different to most of the exams any of you have sat in the past. But if you have your plan and you've done the work, then you just need to go for it. All right. Good work. Is there anything else that you guys want to say to the pre-vocational trainees who might be listening to this, who are hopefully looking forward to their anaesthetic training job next year? Firstly, congratulations. Secondly, welcome to the specialty. A lot of you have already, I imagine, done some time as an anaesthetic resident to, to have gotten the jobs that you've gotten for next year. It's a hard exam and it's worth it for the career that you're setting yourself up for. And it's worth it for the knowledge that it will arm you with for the job that you'll be doing. I'd say the same. It's a huge effort to have got onto the program. It's sort of welcome to the club in a way. I think once you're in, it's a great feeling and it's a very welcoming and supportive and positive culture in anaesthesia. I know that the last couple of years for me have been like the best years of my career. The exam is difficult, but what you learn from it is genuinely quite amazing. And you'll have a depth of understanding of everything that you do that makes the job so much more interesting and engaging And I think is one of the defining features of an anaesthetist is really understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Well done and said by people on this side of the (laughs) The other thing that I would say, and I'm not saying this just to sound cliche, it is really important to still look after yourself. Mm. And when I said you need to prioritise things like not doing as much socialising in sport, it's still important to do some of that. (laughs) You still need to uh, escape out of your office sometimes to see a friend, you still need to make sure that you're exercising regularly and you need to make sure that you're, you know, check in with yourself to see how you're doing. You can always reevaluate a plan for when you are planning on sitting if that that needs to be changed for any reason. Make sure you don't break yourself in the process of going through. Good good tip, Kaylee. Hamish, you were a planner for your approach to the exam. Did you also plan moments of exercise in your week? Yeah, definitely. Exercise is is super, super important. Exercise is almost as important as study in my mind because it's what allows you to focus, allows you to sleep, allows you to stay on top of your mental health. 
It's just optimizing your neurochemistry <laughs> for the exam, basically. And it will drop off at the later end, but you should try and stay in a regular sort of exercise and sleeping and eating pattern for as long as you can. Well done. Well said. Well, thanks for chatting tonight. It's been wonderful chatting and reminiscing about the exam to a degree. Very glad it's behind me, though. Thanks, Susie. Thanks for having us on. Well, that was a fun conversation. Thank you, Kaylee and Hamish, two very hardworking people who have really committed to helping people get through their primary exam. They've been working incredibly hard in providing the ASA primary five at nights. These events have been organised by the amazing Vida Villiunas, who is the Education Officer of the ASA, and rumour has it that she was once an examiner. So she really brings a breadth and depth of experience and also realism to the ASA practice Viva Nights. Much better than getting a Viva from someone like me who did it a long time ago. And of course, these events wouldn't be possible without our ASA events team, led by the very able Rianne Foster, who you will have the pleasure of meeting when you come along to these Viva Nights. These are events that are open to any ASA trainee member. So remember, it is free to join the ASA. I've put a joining link in the show notes, and it is also free to attend these practice fibers once you are an ASA member. And you'll also get access to the video library of all the recorded Viva sessions. I did mention at the start that there are people out there who missed out on a place this year and that there would be a podcast coming out soon. We also do have events for pre-vocational trainees who are trying to get on the program. This year, we offered interview training as well as a chance to meet other registrars who've recently gotten on the program. So if you know any of your colleagues who missed out, please point them in the direction of those resources. Once again, to those who've made it on the program, congratulations. I look forward to seeing you around the traps. And until then, I hope you're staying safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, theasa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening. Mm-hmm.